Please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. We'll be looking at the whole chapter, verses 1 through 29. Romans 2, 1 through 29. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. 
But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, there is so much here that speaks to your righteous judgment and how we will not escape it. Except that you put all our sins on Christ and poured out your wrath on him instead of us. That way we could be saved from your wrath for our sins and we can now stand before you blameless because you gave us the righteousness of Christ in place of our sin. And we cannot thank you enough. So let us feel through your word here as the Apostle Paul leads us, let us feel how truly lost hopeless and desperate our situation is if it were not for your great love for us in Christ. For it is in Jesus' name and for his glory we pray. Amen. I'm not going to sing it. When you get in trouble and you don't know right from wrong, give a little whistle. Give a little whistle. When you meet temptation and the urge is very strong, give a little whistle. Give a little whistle. Take the straight and narrow path. And if you start to slide, give a little whistle. Give a little whistle. And always let your conscience be your guide. Y'all remember Jiminy Cricket? He's right to a point. But there's a deeper question. How do we know that our conscience is right? What's the reality that's out there? What's the, the truth about it? See, we're terrible at spiritual self-diagnosis and moral self-diagnosis. We're terrible at it. We might think we're good. We might think, well, yeah, I know I had some strengths and weaknesses, but overall... I ain't pretty straight. It's because of this that we need someone to stir the pot. We need someone to kick the hornet's nest. Why? Right there in Jeremiah 17, 9 is all you need to know why. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Is that your self-diagnosis? Because that's God's diagnosis of you. The Lord himself actually stirs the pot. We like to think of the Lord being nice and kind, and he is. But you will never know his kindness until you know this. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. That's why Peter wrote, in that verse we quoted last week, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am what? Stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Because the main idea of this text is that God's covenant curse exposes our internal sense of his law which he calls the conscience here, 
which does what? It condemns us. And why is it a curse? Because, and why did God put a curse on us? Not necessarily on us, but on our actions. Because we broke the covenant in Adam. Sounds unfair, doesn't it? God is God, and we are not. We are not wiser than God. So, the question is, is should you let your conscience be your God? Should you always let your conscience be your God? Well, yes and no, according to Paul. No, you shouldn't let it be your God if it causes you to look to yourself or to mere men only. But yes, if it leads you to ask this question, why do we need the God of the gospel? Part two, because we talked about that last week, right? And Paul's still talking about basically the same thing, just in a different focus. Because we like to hide in, and by the way, we need to be stirred out of these hiding places. We like to hide in condescending conduct, conscious conflicts, and community culture. First of all, we like to hide in condescending conduct, conduct, and we become comfortably numb in our own righteousness or supposed righteousness. And what we see Paul describing here is at first Jewish self-righteousness and then what obedient real righteousness looks like. First of all, Jewish self-righteousness, verses one through five, but particularly knowing the judgment of God in verses one and two. You see, he talks about People using God's standard to pass judgment on others. Now, we saw back in verse 20 of chapter 1 where we had no excuse due to the external witness of God through the things that have been made. God has plainly revealed himself, his eternal power and divine nature, right? We knew we were condemned by the external witness. And now Paul is setting up the internal witness. Beginning of verse one, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. You're judging others, but by what standard? Our own? Something we made up? Pulled from the air? And what happens when we do this? Well, we condemn ourselves. Paul says in the second half of verse one, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We might not think it. If you think long enough, at some level, you're breaking all these commandments. Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged. That doesn't mean what the postmodern American thinks it means. You can't judge me while I judge everybody else. And condemn them. But you can't judge me. No. He says, for with the judgment. Now, what's the judgment he's talking about here? He's talking about the internal witness of the law of God. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He knows that you and I know the true standard. And if you mess it up, you deserve the judgment of God. 
Paul says in verse two, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls, rightly falls, and we know it on those who do such things. There is a natural theology that Paul is unveiling here through chapters one and two and down in chapter three. And by the way, like I said, you got to buckle up. It's, it's dark. We're in a dark section of Romans and it needs to be. It's going to get bright, but you won't see the brightness and you won't appreciate it unless you really see the darkness. Look at what we know. We know judgment, but we don't know salvation. And that might get you to wrongly interpret the patience of God. You get to put him off for a while. Not ask too many questions of yourself. Remember, we like to go harsh on others and easy on ourselves, don't we? That's our natural kind of modus operandi. We hate it when we get caught. We like to put him off because maybe we think, I can figure out how to appease him in some way. But Paul says there's no escape. Interpret rightly the patience of God. Verse three, he asks a rhetorical question. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Of course, the answer is no, you will not escape it. And you're misinterpreting, as God is his own interpreter, as we sang about earlier, the kindness, the forbearance, and the patience of God that Paul talks about in verse four. Why? Because there is a way of escape. But we choose the wrong ones. We choose presumption because you really don't know how to apply the true standard. Verses 1 through 11 is applied in a manner of self-righteousness. Verses 12 through 24, it's lazy minds. Verses 25 through 29 in this chapter, it's religious tradition and heritage. But what is the way of escape? Verse four, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? See, that is the key. Your way out in the middle of the story is repentance. It is a change of heart toward God. That's what you have to come to grips with. What is your heart stance toward God? Are you sure that you love him? When was the last time you stopped doing something because you loved him? When was the last time you did something just because you loved God? Just because. Paul says, watch out because you're hard and of your hard and impenitent heart. You see, you naturally, you and I, naturally have hearts of stone, not living hearts. Ezekiel 36, 26. God says, I got the solution here. By the way, here's the answer in the back of the book. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. Why do you need a new heart and a new spirit? Because the one you have ain't good. It's bad. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, a real heart. Like Pinocchio, wanted to be a real boy, right? God thinks that what you do actually is very significant to him. Look at what he says in the end of verse five. 
If you go on this way, he says, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day when the wrath of God will be revealed. We don't like this topic, do we? We want God to be the nice grandfatherly type. When we think of a tender God, that's what we think of, right? When you got a God that's, as one preacher said, it's no more powerful than a pea you could smush between your fingers. Can't do anything for you. He's a God of your own making, your own imagination, your own invention that you control. But Paul puts it like this. Whose glory are you thinking? This is a, instead of Jewish self-righteousness, how about obedient real righteousness? Seeking self-glory or God-glory, verses six through eight. You know, there is, really salvation is works-based. Look at what he says in verse six. He will render to each one according to his what? Works. Jeremiah 17, 10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give to every man according to my mercy. No, according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Now, you can look at the outside and Jesus says you can tell a tree by its fruit, but God sees a little bit further. The definition of works-based righteousness for him is from desire to behavior. He wants it all. You might be able to do some good things. You might have some mixed motives, but he don't want that mixture in there. He wants it pure love for him. Seeking God's glory, verse seven, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and mortality, he will give eternal life. See, so good you can travel in patience doing the will of God no matter what happens in your life. Seek it from the inside out. You get eternal life and that hints that there is such thing as a true righteousness. But already you know I need to be depressed right now because I don't have it. Because this is what I am. I'm a self-seeker. Self-seeking connected with disobedience. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. How many people have disciplined their children, not because it was the righteous thing to do, but because you were embarrassed that the world would look at you and say how bad a parent you are. Paul says it, verse eight. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. It's disobedience to the truth, see? The truth that everyone senses, they know about right and wrong, everyone does. There are no true atheists in this world. How could you be an atheist, by the way? With 5,000 years of human history, and you just showed up on the scene, and you studied it all, you know it all, and you say there is absolutely no God here. You know the truth. You just suppress it, like Paul says, in unrighteousness. It is the self set against God that, that, that suppresses the truth. And the result is enmity and wrath and fury, what Paul says in verse eight. So God gives a just judgment in verses nine through 11. It's revelation dependent judgment, verses nine and 10. The Jews, which by the way, you might as well put us in that because that's us. We're the ones that know the Bible, right? The Jews 
to have a more strict judgment. Verse 9, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. And then he says this, the Jew first and also the Greek. Why the Jew first? Because they have the written revelation. They saw Moses bring down the two tablets. It's clear. They're not kind of getting notions of it. They actually see it explicitly. And that's us. They got it first. They got the revelation first. But all have an opportunity for glory and honor and particularly peace. Verse 10, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. Now, peace is really significant here because it's not peace like that internal sense of, oh, good, relief of stress. It's the external We're in battle with God and God has given you terms of peace. He's putting down his sword. That's what you want. This is the glimmer of light in the midst of this darkness. You see, salvation is by works. But you ain't got him and I ain't got him. But there is somebody who does. That's the bright hope. But see, God is beyond fair, fair, right? God shows no partiality, he says in verse 11. God opens the opportunity to do good for all, and we just don't do it. No, there's no essential favoritism for ethnic Jews of the time or today. It's everybody. This is for everybody. It's open. But just like the Jews of the Bible, we become comfortably numb in our own righteousness. And that's dangerous because God's covenant curse exposes our internal sense of his law, which condemns us. Why do we need the God of the gospel? Because we like to hide in condescending conduct where we become comfortably numb in our own righteousness. But where else can we hide? Well, I'll tell you where we can't, that we, that we can't hide. So we have conscious, conscience conflicts. We become uncomfortably noisy in conscience. If you are spiritually sensitive at all, you have a noisy conscience. Guilt, shame, clanging around up there. So we have Gentile screaming consciences. You're wrong, you're doing it wrong. You've let people down, you've let yourself down, you've let your family down, you've let even the God of the universe down. And so God's saying in one sense, the written special revelation in regards to my judgment is irrelevant. Whether you have it or not, you're condemned. Why? Well, it kind of sounds unfair here in verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Now the law there is that written law of the, primarily summarized in the Ten Commandments. But in the whole revelation of the Old Testament. All right? He's saying, even if you didn't have the chance to get the clear revelation, sorry. Eh, not sorry, actually. There are no excuses. The creator demands of the creature that they should live according to what the creator says. And he has every right to demand that of us. We are not him. Look at verse 13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who are justified. Now, do you feel confident in that? 
Do you want to go up to God and point out how you did the law so well? You think he's going to judge that correctly according to your interpretation of your good works? How many of you want to make wiggle room? A lie is okay if it's just a little white lie. What if God did that with you? Well, I told you you could get into heaven, but I changed my mind. That's what Allah does, by the way, of Islam. For God, there is no such thing as a lie that's little. And you are made in his image. So there's no such thing as a little lie for us either. So the law of God is inscribed on your heart to great effect. It's just not saving effect. And this is why it's right and fair for God to judge according to his law, even for people who never got the written code. Look at what he says in verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is what? Written on their hearts. You have an internal witness to God's law. Not as clearly as the Jews, not as clearly as we have as Christians. But it's interesting that the moral codes around, around the world generally agree, don't they? Generally. Most cultures say murder is wrong. I know they're accepting someone's, some scholars are going to be, no, but this tribe over here, blah, blah, blah. They're just totally lost, okay? Most cultures think murder is a bad thing. Most people think that. That's because it's written on our hearts. Because the Ten Commandments are what it means to be the image of God. If you want to know what the image of God is supposed to be, look at the Ten Commandments. Paul says it like this. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not actually far from each of one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. So God is not just passively writing the law and going, hey, deal with it. He's actually actively engaging the world with this. So we have noisy consciences. Look at verse 15, the end of it. While their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. See, God is just as concerned about the inward desire as he is the outward demonstration. That's why Jesus could say, you can tell them by their fruit. It wasn't because you're just supposed to focus on the fruit. You're supposed to trace the fruit to the root. By the way, though, we can do good things. But in the end, we're just kind of seeking our self-glory from it. As far as God's concerned and what he sees, that's rebellion. He's got to deal with it. So you have Gentiles screaming, right? And then you have Jewish clanging around. And it's, this is a warning to us as Bible believers that we have some kind of special status because we have the written code. Look at verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew, and here's the key word, and rely on the law and boasting God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. So if you call yourself a Jew, you call yourself a Presbyterian, and rely on your background, even a knowledgeable one, 
and know and approve what is excellent and you are instructed by solid teaching from the word, have you earned any merit with God? Verses 19 through 20. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. In other words, if you are internally sure that you got it right, and you maybe do. But it could just be the arrogance of knowledge. So confident that you become certified teachers. Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. The Lord says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Like we said last week, let the Bible interrogate you. Paul says you need to teach and obey yourself. That's why when I use you, I've told you, a lot of people get uncomfortable because preachers using you too much, not saying we enough. You gotta understand, the preacher's in this weird position. I say you, why? Because I'm not here to give you my opinion about things and you can't talk about the preacher. Now you can challenge me, granted, I'm not trying to say, but you can't go and say, well, that preacher said, if it agrees with the word of God, it doesn't matter what the preacher said. Because you know why I'm here? To give you what God says, not what I say. I'm not saying I do that 100% right all the time. I'm not above being challenged and argued with. It's okay. But I'm telling you, the aim of my role is not to get up here and give you my opinion about what the Bible says. It's to give you the word of God. And that means I got to give me the word of God too. So when I say you, I'm actually sitting in the congregation listening to myself, trying to get to the word of God, not to me, to the word of God. Then Paul gets into a list of specifics, you know, the stealing, steal, commit adultery. That's an interesting one. Do you commit adultery? Matthew 5, 27 through 28. You have heard it said, Jesus says, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, all adultery starts there anyway, right? You know, if you start there, it doesn't mean you should go ahead and finish it. But what Jesus is saying is the same category and God is concerned from the inside out, not the outside in. And so your failure damages God's reputation. Verse 24, there are eternal consequences, right? You could be professing faith, but affecting the eternal destiny of those who look to you. Israel and Judah went into exile because of this. The quote is from uh, the, the Septuagint of Isaiah 52, 5. It's not quite the same in the Hebrew, but it's the idea that the Gentiles are blaspheming God because of you and me. We become uncomfortably noisy and conscious if you're spiritually sensitive at all. 
But even that sensitivity in and of itself cannot save. Paul is saying here, all people should have a noisy conscience with your thoughts accusing and excusing you and without confidence in yourself. Because God's covenant curse exposes our internal sense of his law, which condemns us. And that's Paul's point in these chapters. You should come away having a sense of your own condemnation. Because we like, we need the God of the gospel to stir things up. Because we like to hide in condescending conduct where we become comfortably numb in our own righteousness. Excuse me. Because we can't really hide. So we have to go into conscious conflicts, have noisy, accusing, excusing, no confidence kind of consciences. But where else can we try to hide? We're scurrying around, we're looking. We can hide in our community, in our heritage. Verses 25 through 29, our community culture. We become comfortably, comfortably nestled in our heritage. There are first marked meanings and, un, and re, real meanings, excuse me. So marked meanings, verse 25. Paul says there's real value in the symbol of circumcision. There really is. In baptism. But it only really becomes truly eternally valuable if you have perfect obedience. Verse 25, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. And what's the meaning of the mark? Verse 25 at the end. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. It will lead to your condemnation and your damnation. You have not lived up to the meaning of your baptism. You've not lived up to the meaning of circumcision. Just like the rich young ruler. Luke 18. And a ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You go, I thought Jesus was God. Yes, but to this man, this man doesn't know that Jesus is God at this point, right? So Jesus is testing him. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. Which side of the commandments is this from? Is this from the table of the law that deals with other people or the table of the law that deals with God? It's from the table of the law that deals with other people. And look at what the man says. All these things I have kept from my youth. Jesus says, don't call me good. No one is good except God alone. This guy goes, I'm good. I'm good. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Now he moves to the other side. This is the God table. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the point of that verse, by the way. It's not social justice. The point of that verse is, you shall have no other gods before me. So what is it that makes you special? Well, according to Paul here, it's doing the will of God. Verses 26 through 27. Focus on the meaning, Paul says, that, and this, if you focus on the meaning, the ceremonial mark almost pales in significance. Verse 26, so if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision. And then if you think you're qualified to teach because 
You've got the written code. The tables will actually turn on you. Verse 27, then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. The tables turn. If there could be such a one that is purely righteous but doesn't have the law, he'll condemn you to have the law but break it and don't obey it. So there's marked meanings, but then there's real meanings of the mark. Verses 28 through 29. Because you see, God's methodology is not outside in. It's inside out. Look at what he says. He is not a Jew, right? For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. It literally says in the Greek, not a Jew. He's emphasizing the negative. So Jewishness is about not, it's not about ethnicity. It's actually about your spiritual condition. True Judaism is the same thing as true Christianity. We are one people of God. And I don't mean the Jews that are running them around calling themselves Jews today. How many ethnicities are among them? There are Jews from Ethiopia. There are Jews from Slavic nations. There are Jews from Germanic nations. There are Jews from Spain, significant uh, Sephardic Jews from Spain. They're not an ethnicity. So Jewishness is not about the external markers that we normally look to. Jewishness is about the call of the God of Abraham when he called Abraham out of darkness into his light, the same way he does with Christians. Look at Joshua 24, right as the people were about to go into the promised land. And Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah and the father of Abraham, and of Nahor, and they, what? Served other gods. Then I, God says, took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. What made him special was not even that he did the will of God, but that God called him, took him, and brought him to be his own. That's why we need the God of the gospel. Because God's methodology is inside out. Look at verse 29. Circumcise your hearts. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not, the letter, not by the letter. Deuteronomy 10, 16. Because you belong to God, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart. That's a symbol, I won't go into all of it right now, of throwing off your sin, being marked by God. And be no longer stubborn. Verse 17, for the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. Your heritage as a Presbyterian or whatever uh, will, will not, uh, Presbyterian or whatever you may claim will not be a bribe that God will accept for you or your works. But what you really want is God to praise you, don't you? It sounds weird, doesn't it? God will sing praises over you. End of verse 29. God praises you because that's your true heritage. That's what makes you special. You have God. His praise is not from man, but from God. God praising you. Do you want praise from God or from man? Give up your comfortable hiding places, Paul says because we become comfortably nestled in our heritage beyond just being Presbyterian, whatever it is, all our identities. 
I'm saying that those are unimportant. But it's not what makes you special. Not according to when it's all said and done, what true reality will reveal. God wants to praise you, but how does he do this? It seems so hopeless, but as Paul Harvey said, you're missing the rest of the story. I can't do him. The question is, what's possible with God? At the end of that story about the rich young ruler, it says in Luke 18, Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. The rich young ruler had a conscious seer because he thought he was good. It guided him to the good things of God's law, but it didn't guide him to God. But what's possible with God? Jesus presenting you to God, praising you because he was sanctified. He was set apart as holy in your place so that now God sees you the way he sees Jesus. Look at what it says in Hebrews 2, 11 through 13. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them, to call you and me, his brothers. Saying, I will tell of your, of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. That's what Jesus is gonna do for you and me at judgment, if we belong to him. Instead of judgment, he's gonna sing our praises. Does that sound good? After all this darkness? Verse 13, and again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. That's the tender heart of God right there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, to have Jesus presenting us to you clean, righteous, justified, and sanctified in him and then praising us before you is almost too good to be true. But the only way we know it's true is that it didn't come for nothing. Jesus lived a purely and totally righteous life in our place and died the death of suffering of your wrath for our sins so that we could have our sins paid for and be qualified to stand in your presence blameless. For that, let us never outlive our love for you. For it is in Jesus' name. And for his glory we pray, amen.